Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, it's good to see you this morning. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. I want to just ask you to do a couple of things as we uh, get started. Number one, if you're able and would like to do so, uh, this is that moment where I ask you to take your phones out, go to your Facebook page, go to the Covenant page, scroll up until you see a live feed that looks something like this, and just share that with your family and friends. Let them know what the Lord is doing in our midst. Uh, I also want to remind you about Team Covenant tonight. I am really excited about that. It'll be at 4 o'clock. You've seen our staff wearing green T-shirts uh, there, there's going to be some giveaways, there's going to be a lot of fun, there's going to be some relationship building, there's going to be a meal, there's going to be just a really challenging message. Uh, this is the launch of a new era of volunteerism uh, as part of Team Covenant. And so if you haven't yet signed up and you're part of Team Covenant, or you have intentions to be part of Team Covenant, uh, there is still room and we would welcome you to come tonight. Uh, and I hope, to, I hope to see you there. It's going to be a great, great opportunity. The Monday after Thanksgiving, 2018, there's days where you can just remember exactly what happened. That was one of those days, because that was the day that I made the decision, you know what, it's it's time for my wife to get a new vehicle. Now, let me tell you what led up to that point. We had spent the week prior to that in Massanutten, Virginia. We had taken our oldest son back to Geneva College, where he's a student up north of Pittsburgh, and And we were coming home when I I felt some really heavy vibration. Now, my son could have probably figured that out. He's a mechanical engineering student. My father could have probably figured that out. He spent 40-plus years as a diesel truck mechanic, but that particular skill leapt right over my head. So I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know if it was the transmission, if it was the suspension. I, I, I know enough from both my father and my son to know parts, but not how they all work together. And so we finally, thank God, made it home. And I picked up the phone the very next day, and I called Ronnie Brown. Ronnie and Maria, some of you may know them. They were in the 9 o'clock service for us. Uh, They own Brown's Tire and Auto right here in town. And I said, Ronnie, I got a problem. I don't know what it is. So he said, well, bring it up. I'll take a look at it. He calls me a couple of hours later. He said, Pastor, I got good news. He said, I think it's the tires. I think that's it. I don't think you've got a transmission problem. I don't think you have a suspension problem. I think that your, your tread has separated in your front tires, and I think I've solved it. But just in case, why don't you come up here and get the keys from me, take it out on a little ride, and let's make sure that we're chasing the same vibration before I close this out. I said, great. He said, if if I'm right, a new set of tires and that's it. You'll be out of here and you'll be doing great. So I went and I got the keys from Ronnie. I got in the van. I pulled out of his lot and I, I traveled a little bit less than a mile down the road and that's where I hit the FedEx truck. And uh, so if any of you have Christmas presents that were late that year, it it, it could have been your pastor's fault. Uh, I hit a FedEx truck. Now, here's what was going on. The speed limit on this particular road is 45 miles an hour. And I was going, well, faster than that. I was testing the durability of the car when this FedEx truck pulls out in front of me. And I will admit my reaction was not the most godly I've ever had in my life. It was one of those moments, you know, most people have car accidents, they'll tell you, I I had to make a decision, and that decision 
was less than two seconds that I had to reason through everything and make a decision. And if it's the wrong decision, then probably what will happen to you is what happened to me on this day. I checked my rear view mirror. I saw nothing immediately behind me. I saw no one in the left lane behind me. And you know how this works. You put on your turn signal as you're looking there, and then you pull out to go around the individual. But in, in looking in my rearview mirror, I missed something. I missed the FedEx driver's left turn signal. And as I started to go around and hit the accelerator, just enough, running about miles an hour, that I couldn't slow down. I couldn't stop. She turned left in front of me, and there was nothing left to do but collide and let physics do its thing. I called Ronnie. I said, I'm going to be a while. Is everything okay? Oh, yeah. Did I do a good job? You did an excellent job. It drove beautifully for three whole minutes. And everything that happened after that was exactly my fault. And here's what had happened. I'd looked a little too long in that rearview mirror. I had depended just a little bit too much on what was behind me and that false sense of security about what was behind me caused me to have a perverted view of what was in front of me. Let me ask you, what's in your rearview mirror? How do you use it? How do you look back on it? This is the, this is the question we really want to ask this morning. I mean, rearview can be helpful. If you've ever been in counseling, you know a lot of times that's the first thing they get you to do. Check the rearview mirror of your life. Go back to your parents, go back to your raising, go back to perhaps a trauma or something that happened to you. Uh, but, but you also know that you can live in the past in a really unhealthy way. And so rear views are like that, even the literal ones. They can help you, but they can also give you a, a skewed picture of reality, can't they? They even say on the mirror, objects are a little bit different here than they are when they're actually behind you. They're actually larger and closer than they appear. And so how you interpret what happens in that rear view mirror matters. We've been in a series for about five weeks now called The Grace Driven Life. We've been talking about the fact that you don't live enslaved to sin. That is not Jesus' call for you. You don't live enslaved to the law. That's not Jesus' call for you. You've got to come out from under that enslavement. And the way to do that is to live in grace. And a, and a grace-driven life is not living with permission to sin, it is Christ crucified, resurrected, and living in me. That's what we talked about last week when we finished out chapter 2 together. It's a powerful picture of me and you and, and everyone who follows Jesus being empowered to overcome sin and to fulfill the purpose for which God has called us. And what's going to happen as we now enter chapter 3 is Paul is going to turn back to the Galatian church and say to them the following, this was my goal for you, that you would live the crucified life, that Christ would live in you, and that you as a result would live victorious. So what happened to you? What happened to you? In verse 1, he even uses the phrase, who has bewitched you? Some of you were raised in Judaism. And it's one thing to have been raised with the law and the priesthood and the dietary restrictions and all these things that we've been talking about throughout this series, but, but many of you weren't raised with that at all. You grew up in this area of modern-day Turkey, and I just came and preached the simple gospel of grace to you. You came into this new life through, great, through, through faith alone, and now you're looking through your rearview mirror, and you see a different reality, and this is not how you started. That's the point. These six verses tell us the following. If you want to live the grace-driven life, you want to live in the kind of freedom we've been talking about over the last several weeks, you've got to finish the same way you started. 
And that is by the same grace and the same faith. And, and so what we have here are, are some rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions that already have an answer to them. Paul's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking as a means to elicit the, the obvious answer out of the Galatians. And those questions, well, they'll give you and me a clear view of the rear view. So let's ask these questions together, starting with the question of control. In verse 1, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has bewitched you? That, that word bewitching, it only occurs this one time in all the New Testament. And so what you have to do if you want to know its real meaning, you've got to go outside the Bible to determine how it's been used. And, and mo, more often than not, it's used to describe how someone would cast a spell on somebody else. In fact, the closest, uh, the closest kind of concept that we have in our own day would be hypnosis. Paul would say, probably if, he was, probably if he was writing in the 21st century, who's hypnotized you? Now, I've always been fascinated by hypnosis. Never enough to give myself over to it, because I ain't stupid. But I kind of like watching it happen to other people. And this is one of those really bad things about reality television, right? Well, there's things we'd never do, but we like to watch it happen to other people. Four years ago, an article came out entitled, 27 People Reveal What Really Happened to Them Under Hypnosis. One woman believed she was drowning. The hypnotist sent her down a hole that was filled with water. And so she's up in front of everybody. She's on the stage. She's obviously breathing oxygen. But simultaneous with that, her lips are turning blue. Because she really believed she was drowning. Another individual said, I went through the hypnotic process and woke up literally believing that I had given birth to a child. Which is really bizarre given the fact that not only was I not pregnant, I'm a man. Okay? There's all kinds of things that you can do to play tricks on the mind. One man who danced to the instructions of the hypnotist said, here's the, here's the crazy thing about it. I knew... I knew what I was doing deep down, but I couldn't control it. It was honestly the most bizarre thing ever. Now, when you willingly reduce your state of consciousness to the point that you lose power over voluntary action, you become highly responsive to, a will of, to the will of another, and they get you to do some really crazy stuff. This is what Paul is suggesting happened to the church at Galatia. Some people, he says, when they've been hypnotized, can be made to bray like a donkey. They can speak in a language they've never learned. They can dance. These Judaizers have brought you under their spell. And you know how I know that? Because of everything he said in the last two chapters. It's because they have convinced you that in order to be saved, you have to have surgery on a very sensitive part of your anatomy. And you just said, okay. This is the action of someone who's been hypnotized. Listen, when the fruit of any doctrine is religious control rather than freedom in Christ, you're not just dealing with another interpretation. This isn't one of those, those issues where you just agree to disagree. You're actually dealing in that moment with false teaching, and at the root of it is it's paganism. And Paul is so pointed and clear and forceful in how he confronts this, to live under the control of false teaching is to live enslaved. To be under the control of Jesus is to live in freedom. And so the truly grace-driven life 
It doesn't need rules, doctrinal, behavioral referees with whistles. You don't need that. You need to submit yourself completely and totally to the will of your Lord Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you, just as Jesus had the power to justify you by faith apart from anything you've ever done, Jesus by himself has the power to make you everything you ought to be. And if you'll just submit to him, he by himself is enough to get you wherever God wants you to go. And so you need to ask this control question. Is there something internally in me that I think is, is trying to exert control where only Jesus should have control? Have I submitted myself to another who's trying to control me when only Jesus should have control? And one of, the reasons, one of the ways you can answer that question is by answering another one. And that's the question of conversion. Paul goes on in verse 2 and he says the following, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul's taking the Galatians back to their own experience of conversion. He came in, he preached the gospel, they believed. And he says, look... You, you don't need food laws, circumcision, calendar observance. What you need to do, if you're truly converted, you will simply want to follow Jesus. You will want to obey Jesus. You will want to, to be like Jesus. The, the purpose of the law is not to make you like Jesus. The purpose of the law is to illustrate for you that you are not like Jesus. The law exposes your weaknesses. It, it can do nothing to empower you to overcome them. And at the end of the day, you and I, if we're followers of Christ, if we've genuinely been converted, we will not avoid sin merely because it's wrong. We will avoid it because we've given everything to Christ and we love him too much to give ourselves to anything less. Some of you think it's the rules, it's the regulations, it's the things that, that I need to put over me that keep me from, from crossing a line. And Paul, over and over in this passage, is saying, no, it, it's, it is complete submission to and absolute love for Jesus. I had a former seminary professor who became a dear friend of mine. He was, um, he was a missionary in a place in Southeast Asia for about 10 years. He was invited by a new group of Christians in a really rural part of that country to come and teach. They've been Christians less than just a few months. The chief or whatever they called the head of that particular tribe, because they really didn't know any other way to, to lead to, or to be led, he became the, the pastor. And my friend went and preached the gospel and taught those new believers. And at the end of the night, they're gathered around the fire and, and the campfire, and the, the pastor leans over and says to my friend, you've honored us by coming, by teaching us the word of God, and we would like to honor you. And the way in which he was going to honor my friend was by letting my friend take his wife home for the night. Now, my friend asked a question through the translator, because he said, surely there's been something lost in translation. There was not. The translation was accurate. Come to find out, this particular tribe, for hundreds of years, prior to them being converted and following Jesus, this was the highest honor that they could give anyone in their community, and it was the highest of high honors for the chief to say to you, please take my wife home and spend the evening with her. Now, what in the world do you do in a situation like that? And my friend jokes about it. He's like, I don't even, like, no. But I, I'm, what am I supposed, am I supposed to say thank you? What am I supposed to say to this? 
Here's something that happened. You see, that would be wrong. That would be sinful. That's what the Bible calls adultery. So do you go to Exodus 20 and say, no, I'm not going to do this. And you shouldn't do this because you shall not commit adultery. Well, here's the issue with that. These people don't have the written scriptures in their language. They know nothing of the law or the origins out of which our Christian faith comes. And so if you say, thank you, but no, I'm not taking your wife home to sleep with her because even though you're trying to honor me, you're actually dishonoring me, dishonoring yourself, way dishonoring your wife because the Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And this guy would go, what's adultery? So how do you do this? Well, here's how my friend responded. This is how he responded. He took them back to the same Jesus that just months before had genuinely saved them and converted them. He took that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and he connected that sacrifice to the role of a husband in relationship to his wife. He then connected that to the broader history of marriage, which way predates the giving of the law. It goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Genesis 2, a man leaves his father and mother, makes a new priority and a new family, and then he flexed back to the Pauline passages in Ephesians and Colossians because now all of that makes sense. The centrality of Jesus who saved your soul in all things, including your marital relationships. He didn't mention adultery one single time. But you know what happened? Those people made a commitment that day that they would never do this again because we follow Jesus and this is what Jesus wants us to do and this is how Jesus wants us to treat our wives. And so this, this from this point forward is the kind of husbands that we're going to be. Paul's doing the same thing here with the Galatian believers. The change, he says, that you've experienced that transformed everything about you it came through faith. Not because somebody came in with a list of rules and said, if you'll just start living this way, everything will be fine. Your spouses, your kids, your co-workers, your family members, that, that they know they're living with a different person now because Jesus changed everything. So, sometimes I get the opportunity to speak to people that have lived for years in captivity to a particular kind of sin, and they, they think the answer is in some new rule. Some new limitation that they want to put on themselves. As you can imagine, in this technologically advanced day, uh, internet pornography is a large part of that. Some of those are women, but for the most part, it's men who have come my way over the years and admitted to their struggle with that. And one of the first things they say is, well, I think I, need to, I think I just need to unplug my computer. Well, in the initial phase, that might not be a bad idea. Maybe what you need is a change of habit. I would never tell you to not do that. Here's what I would tell you, though. Be careful about solving a heart issue, ultimately and finally, with external rules, okay? Maybe you do need to unplug as a, as a measure of your own repentance from this particular sin and as a commitment to lead a different kind of life, particularly if you're doing it at 2 a.m. You should be sleeping, boss. Right? That's not wrong. Just be sure you understand that the problem is not in Potomac Edison. It's not in Xfinity. It's not in Frontier. It, well, it might be Frontier. It's, <laughs> it's always Frontier. The problem is here. Okay? If I got an issue with what I'm looking at on the web, 
It's not my internet service provider. It is Joel's fleshly heart that has to be changed. If you're still enslaved to sin, the answer is not an external rule. It's not more yelling. When I was a young pastor, I had a guy, and he would occasionally, I, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with my voice today because it's that time of year, apparently, and, and he used to think that I, I had to always leave the pulpit like this. Like, if I didn't yell so loud that I lost my voice, I've compromised. Grew up in a hyper-fundamentalistic kind of a background, and he said, preacher, just preach harder, preach harder. Now, I, I wondered, what is up with that? I finally came to the conclusion that this guy was living enslaved to multiple things that were going on in his life. But in his mind, it's okay because I come to church every Sunday and I let the preacher beat me up. Let me tell you something. That's a horrible way to live. More yelling from this podium is not going to help you. It's not. More guilt is not going to help you. More rules are not going to help you. The answer is in a transformation of your heart at the fundamental level, and that only comes by faith. This, we got three more questions to look at, but brothers, sisters, this is the most important one. Have you really been converted? I mean, do you really belong to Jesus? I'm not asking if you prayed some prefabricated prayer and got dunked in a tank and have your name on a membership roll. I'm asking you, when you look at 2 Corinthians 5 and it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old has passed away and all things have become new. Can you look at that and see your reflection? Because that's what conversion is. My heart has been changed. And it's not that I'm gonna, not going to fail anymore, but I'm going to view these things in a very different way. The question of conversion, has this happened? The question of control, is it Jesus that literally is the Lord over my life or is it me or is it someone else? Number three, the question of consistency. Verse three, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Here's the heart of the matter. You got to finish the same way you start. Uh, we're blessed here to have just a host of physicians and nurses, mental health professionals, people in the medical field in general that are part of our church. And when I talk to them, I always learn a lot. But one of the things I've learned about people in all those professions is that one of their biggest frustrations usually comes when their patients begin to self-medicate. You know what that means? It means they, they, get, they get healed and then they decide, well, I can decide what level of drugs I need to take. Or I can decide what kinds of drugs I'm going to take. Or I can go off of this, or I can do that. So you, get, you take a diabetic, for example, you get his glucose down below 100. You get his A1C down below about 6.5. And, and you tell him, boy, everything looks good. You're taking the, the medication we want you to take. You're exercising, getting regular exercise. You're eating the way we told you to eat. And here we are six months later. You're in far better health than you were and they respond to that by going, fantastic, I got a whole pecan pie waiting at home to celebrate. You have to finish the way you start. In mental health, this is particularly acute, particularly with people with bipolar disorder. And if you're one of those people who has bipolar disorder, you're not any worse than anybody else in this room. But it would probably be helpful if you would just be aware of that, that, that just the idiosyncrasies around that particular condition, that it is people with that particular condition that are more prone than any other kind of mental health patient to self-medicate. It's because they finally reach equanimity and they say to themselves, well, I, I don't need this anymore. And what they forget is it is the very medicine you just threw in the trash 
that got you where you are. This is what Paul's saying to the Galatians. You started by one thing, and now you're trying to self-medicate. You're trying to say, well, I'll add a little law. I'll do this. I don't need to do that anymore. I need to now add this. In a sense, that's what's happening. He said, you began by the Spirit. It took the Holy Spirit's initiative and power to bring you to Jesus. Do you really think all by yourself you can continue in Jesus without him? He said, the, the broader witness of the Bible tells us that salvation comes in both past, present, and future tenses. And so the first of those is something called justification. When we use the phrase, he got saved, that's typically what we're talking about. Someone was justified. That is, they, they exercised their faith, and in response to that, God, on the sole basis of Jesus' death and resurrection, declares us to be righteous. That's how I got saved. That's how I have the assurance of eternal life. But there are two other things that come after that. After justification comes sanctification. This is that lifelong process. And it's the process by which we are becoming more like Jesus every day. And we will sanctify, and we will sanctify, and we will sanctify until we are glorified. That's when we finally meet our Savior. And we're made perfect, just as he intends for us to be. Here's what Paul's saying. If you, if I, if, if we need Jesus for one of these, we need him for all three. We can't switch horses midstream and expect that we will make it. It is foolish to think, I need the gospel to go to heaven and be justified, but I'll sanctify all on my own. So now that I've been declared righteous, just give me the rule book and I'm good. No, you're not. Because if that's your approach, it's going to lead you to one of two places. Either pride on the one hand, because you've managed to delude yourself into thinking you've done it on your own, or despair on the other. Because you realize you can't do it. Anybody in here ever led an inconsistent life like that? I made it by grace through faith, but I'm going to try to do the rest of this on my own. Can I, can I share a little inconsistency that I've noticed? With that? And you guys still love me when I'm done? Can I do that? Several months ago, our staff got a wonderful idea, or I thought it was a wonderful idea, that we would give away car decals to go on the back window of your car. It had the Covenant logo on it. had Covenant clearly displayed. And I thought, man, this is, this is a wonderful idea. Let's do it. Let's do it. Because my goal will be three states and seven counties from which all of you and the people in the 9 o'clock together have gathered. Uh, I'll, no matter where I go, every time I roll into a parking lot, I want to see at least one automobile that's got that on it. You know, free advertising. Preachers love that kind of thing. A few weeks after that campaign launched, I asked the staff, how's it going? They said, well, not, not too well, actually. I said, what do you mean not too well? We're not sub like We're giving these away, right? They're, we're not charging them. No, yeah, but people don't want to take them. Why don't they want to take them? They said, well, more than a couple of dozen have just openly admitted, I, I don't behave myself on the road. <laughs> now, here's a couple of things that went through this pastor's mind. I said, um, number one, I, you at least have the presence of mind to realize I am a reflection on my church family, especially if I behave like that with a covenant sticker on the back. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. But there's something you're missing in that. The role of sanctification 
is for you not to be that way forever. It's good to recognize the problem, but how are we going to correct it? And, and this goes back to Paul's words. You cannot, having been justified by faith, correct your road rage by works. That's not how it happens. You have to be, remember last week, crucified with Christ behind the wheel. How does that happen? All right, Pastor, I don't like where this is going. Of course you don't. Because what I'm telling you is what Paul is telling you, which is there's no excuse to just, just go, well, salvation is by faith through grace, and this is just how I am when I get behind the wheel. God intends more for you. And here's the thing. You, me, whether we're behind the wheel, whatever it is that trips your triggers, we need the gospel for that. We don't need self-improvement. We don't need a rule book. We need Jesus. I need him every bit as much now as I did when I first believed. Brothers and sisters, I need him as much as I did the day I was born. And this is the promise. It's in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He'll get this done. I am not left to my own devices once I'm justified. He's with me in the very process of making me more like himself. Are we consistent? Are we really converted? Have we given control over to the right person? Here's question number four. It's the question of cost. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. That's vague. Vague reference here to some level of suffering that the Galatians have gone through. We don't know exactly what kind it was, but we do know this from Scripture. We know that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that. And so if you've paid a social or a cultural or a relational price for your faith, Paul's point is that why would you turn around and, and very quickly abandon that faith for the counterfeit offered you by the Judaizers? See, anybody in this room that's over the age of 35, you may have forgotten by this point what you had for dinner last night. But you remember September 11, 2001, don't you? Yeah. I don't, I, I don't remember what I had last night, but I know exactly where I was. I know exactly how I found out. I, 19 years later, this coming September, I know pretty well exactly everything I did that day. It's amazing, isn't it? At 8.46 in the morning, five terrorists who had hijacked American Airlines Flight 11 Use that airplane like a missile to fly into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. At 9.03, less than 20 minutes later, United Airlines 175 was flown into the South Tower by another five hijackers. 34 minutes after that occurred, another five flew American Airlines 77 right into the west side of the Pentagon. And then finally, at 10.03, passengers on board United Airlines Flight 93 managed to wrest control from the terrorists, but not before the plane, according to witnesses, had inverted and crashed with such force that it left hardly any thing in the ground in a field just outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania. When people ask me, Pastor, would people really die for a lie? I think about where I was and what I did on that day. And my answer is pretty easy. Of course they would. That's what these men did. All 19 of them died for a lie. But here's the thing. It may have been a lie, but they really believed it. They believed it. It's another question to ask would you die for something if you knew it was a lie? Well, that question is equally easy to answer. No. No. And, and this is Paul's point to the Galatians. 
you're capitulating to the lies of the Judaizers. You're living in a way that demonstrates you don't believe the very message you've already been willing to suffer for. And that doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you live this way? If the message I preach to you isn't true, then you've suffered for nothing. That persecution was a lie. How can you suffer for a faith and then so quickly dismiss it for a counterfeit? You know, sometimes we demonstrate our ignorance best by the hills we choose to die on, don't we? You look at a group like these 19 men, and you go, man, look at all that carnage, all of that death, loss of life and property, all the subsequent warfare that's come. Every time I get on an airplane 19 years later, I still have to take off my clothes. Look at everything that this caused, and, and look at their own lives even that God gave them. Wasted over nothing. What a false and then we so quickly divide from each other. How many genuine, like long-term friendships, like brother and sister in Christ friendships, have been lost over who you're going to vote for this November? Over whether you allow your kid to go to the prom or watch a movie that's beyond rated PG or have wine with your steak or how you educate your children, how you choose to do that in particular, or when you think the rapture is going to happen, or over any number of other things that all of a sudden find themselves wedged into a very simple gospel of grace. Is it really worth all that suffering? Is it worth all of that loss of, of relationship? I came to a principle a long time ago, and, and the Lord gave me this through experiences he gave me traveling to, to five different continents. Generally speaking, I think, and there's some rare exceptions, but I think generally speaking, if we were to relocate this body of believers over into the Middle East or into North Africa or into some parts of Southeast Asia or into certain environments where government was really, really hard on Christians and we were having to live under the thumb and the threat of either government or our neighbors persecuting us or perhaps both, what would we fight over then? I say, the longer I live and the longer I minister, the more I come to the just... For me, what is an inescapable conclusion? If it wouldn't be an issue over there, it should not be an issue here. Because you and I, just like our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, we've got something far more important to do. That's the question of cost. If you're going to fight for something, fight for grace. Fight for the unadulterated gospel that Paul speaks about here. That's the, that's the question of cost. What are you actually willing to pay a price for? Number five, the question of cleansing question of cleansing. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the heart of the question is this, how exactly does God work in and through us in order to set us free? And, and theologically, the church in its history has had a, a couple of different answers to this. So if you're here and you grew up in a, either a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox kind of environment, what you probably learned in, the, in that environment was something called synergism. Synergy is what? It's the combining of resources to get something done. And so synergism, theologically, is the belief that the forces come together. It's a collaboration of God's grace and my will that combine that forms my sanctification, my growth and grace. God opens the door, but i got to walk through it. That's synergism. The historic Protestant position has been monergism. God works alone. And he works through the Holy Spirit to regenerate me. He gives me the faith necessary to believe. He justifies me by faith. He works through me to make me more like Jesus. There is a reason that at Covenant, we are unabashed monergists. It's because these verses are just, they're just a part of the many, many reasons why. Paul assumes that salvation is not some effort that combines what I do with what God does. Salvation is a miracle. 
You know what a miracle is? It's when God does something completely apart from my own effort. It's when God does something in me I could never do for myself. It's also when God does something that he does apart from the, the normal, natural order that he established in creation. When he decides to interrupt that, that's what we call a miracle. Okay? And so when the Red Sea parts, we go, that don't happen. When a donkey speaks, we go, that don't happen. When an axe head floats, that don't happen. When a man is raised from the dead, we go, that don't happen. Unless God does something that we could never do. Unless God does something that is completely disconnected from human effort, and then it does happen. And your salvation and mine, our freedom in Christ, is every bit as wholly dependent on a miraculous work of God as, as are those great miracles that we read about and believe happen in the Scriptures. Listen, there is no greater miracle. You can part all the Red Seas you want. You can create all the global floods you want. There is still no greater miracle than when a human soul, marred by a level of depravity that just reflexively turns against God and His will, is so powerfully converted that that person becomes new in Christ. And Paul's question here is meant to shock the reader. Do you really think you had some part in that? Are you so naive as to think that circumcision or submitting yourself to dietary restrictions or submitting yourself to a particular kind of calendar would play a role in this? And then, then comes the mic drop, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So this is the mic drop moment. All of your dietary observances, all of your calendar observance, all of you that have been circumcised already, all of you that are thinking about it, you need to just take all that in a great big ball and, and put it on the thread and trace that thread all the way back to one person, someone whose existence preceded the law of Moses that the Judaizers are trying to put you under right now. This man was Abraham. This is the man through whom all of this began. And you know what? The first patriarch, the first Israelite, the origin of all this stuff you guys are arguing over, he became righteous by one avenue. He believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I wonder how many people in front of me have spent a good part of your life just white-knuckling through your sin just to be defeated by it over and over and over. Whatever it is, here's what you need to hear. Abraham, the liar. Abraham, the coward, Abraham, the man who prostituted his own wife to save his own skin, became righteous. You know how? He believed God, and that same righteousness is available to you. That same miracle of transformation can liberate you from whatever it is, if it's addiction, if it's sexual sin, if it's unjust anger, if it's lust, if it's jealousy, whatever has you enslaved, you can walk out of here free today. Today, you can be cleansed by the very blood of Jesus that we just remembered. And you can be set free by the power of his resurrection. You know, the life of grace is kind of like an airplane ride. You get on board. You get strapped in. You finally get up to your cruising altitude. The seatbelt light goes off, which is personally my favorite part of the flight. And you go, you know what, I'm going to take a little nap. I'm riding in coach today. But you know what? I'm going to recline the full three inches. All right. A few minutes later, there's a commotion that wakes you up, and you look across the aisle, and in the middle seat on the other side is another guy, and he's sweating profusely, and he's just he's doing this, and he's yelling 
This is the commotion. He's yelling at everybody. Come on! I can't keep doing this forever! And you look at him, and you say, what are you doing? I'm trying to keep this plane in the air! How many of you are living like that? You're not doing it. You're not keeping the plane in. Yes, I am! This is the only reason we haven't crashed, and if you people don't start doing this, we're going down! You would say three things. Well, maybe you wouldn't say them if you were polite. You would think three things about that individual. Well, you know what? You'd think four things. The first thing you would think is, there is something wrong with you. The second thing you would think is, you're not helping. The third thing you would think is, you're making everybody around you nervous and highly uncomfortable. And the fourth thing you would think is, you are killing yourself for absolutely no reason. You don't have to live like this. So you've been white knuckling through your sin and it keeps getting you and your arms are incredibly tired. You don't have to live like that. You don't have to do that. But you're going to have to finish the same way you started. Or perhaps, maybe you just need to go back to start and do it the right way this time. Maybe what really needs to happen is you need to give all of yourself in submission to Christ and put all of your faith in his death and resurrection because you've never done that, and now you're wondering, why am I powerless? Because you need the gospel. You need to live in that freedom. Let me tell you something. A lot of people are deluded into thinking they really have a relationship with Jesus, and there is no discernible change in their life. But the other side of that is powerful. Listen, if God has really saved you, he's got you. He ain't ever going to let you go. You are never going to be lost again. The power of the crucifixion and the resurrection changes and empowers you. And the message of grace is stop doing this. Enjoy the flight. Rest in the one who died for you and who rose for you. Allow him to to live in his power and might and his perfection in you. And watch every sin that tries to defeat you go down. John Bunyan, the Puritan, wrote a poem about this. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly, and it gives us wings. Welcome to grace. Welcome to grace. Give yourself, all of yourself, to him and live in victory. Heavenly Father, thank you for these precious men and women. And thank you for the truth of your word. I ask you, Lord, to take these final moments and convict hearts and minds. Bring them to faith in yourself. Lord, for those who've, who've lived enslaved for years, maybe even for decades, may this be the day that the handcuffs come off, that the ankle shackles come off, and they walk out of this room free from the law, free from their sin, free to live victorious until they see you. Lord, may your spirit come and produce that in the hearts of everyone gathered here. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, 
I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.